Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on it. And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real. Because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how they affect our nation's future. This week, we'll sort through the various internal divisions among congressional Democrats that have slowed President Biden's legislative agenda. And we'll also look at the ongoing partisan standoff over the debt limit, which Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says could be breached as soon as October 18th. For insights on all this, we welcome back to the program, Tom Kahn. Tom is a faculty fellow at the Center for Congressional and Presidential Studies at American University in Washington, DC. Great school, by the way, where I got my political science degree many, many years ago. Joining the conversation is Tori Gorman, policy director of the Concord Coalition, later, Steve Robinson, our chief economist, uh, will join me and Tori for a roundup of the latest developments and where it might all come out. But first, let's bring in Tom Kahn, who, uh, uh, as I said, is at American University. But for 20, uh, for 20 years, uh, Tom was staff director and chief counsel of the House Budget Committee. And he's also had uh, a number of other positions uh, in, uh, in, in uh, Congress with other congressional committees. And uh, so he has some pretty good insights into what might be going on behind the scenes. Tom and Tori, welcome back to Facing the Future. Tom and Tori, welcome back to Facing the Future. Thanks, Bob. Thank you, Bob. It's great to be back. Well, uh, Tom, I, uh, I know that you're coming to us from Ki- Kiev or Kiev, whichever, uh, this morning, and I hope that a d- despair over events in Washington haven't uh, forced you abroad. You know, it occurred to me that uh, for the past couple of years, you've run a budget exercise, a Concord Coalition budget exercise with your students uh, called Principles and Priorities, in which they go through some of the hard choices in the budget, you know, how much to spend, how much to tax, yeah. how much new debt to take on, or, you know, if any. And, uh, you know, it's meant to give them a sense of what it's like to be a, a member of Congress. And, and this week, uh, and for the coming couple of weeks anyway, we don't, we don't need a budget simulation. They're, the members of Congress are doing it in real life. I mean, this really seems to be where the, the rubber hits the road. And, uh, you know, just a little preliminary, of course, what, what happened last week is the president's agenda stalled, uh, no pun intended on the infrastructure. But the infrastructure, bipartisan infrastructure bill didn't have enough votes to pass without also having a major social infrastructure bill. But that didn't have enough votes to pass in the Senate. So uh, Schumer and Pelosi and Biden were kind of stuck. And uh, that's where we are right now. They're trying to work things out. So um, what do you think they should do, Tom? (laughs) Well, they have a heck of a dilemma on their hands right now because um, the size of the uh, reconciliation bill is going to have to go down in order to meet the demands of Senator Sinema and Manchin from $3.5 trillion down to $2 trillion. 
that's a, about a 40% cut. That's huge. And uh, today or yesterday, uh, Vice Pre uh, President Biden met with progressives to basically tell them, you know, smell the coffee, wake up because the, the size of the packet is going to go down. And the only question is, how will it be cut? What will stay in the, stay in the, in the bill and what won't? Um, so he's sending that message very loud and clear to the progressives that uh, it has to be cut. Uh, he's also meeting with the, um, the moderates today to tell them that they have to get on board to vote for the, uh, the soft infrastructure if they want their bipartisan bill to pass. I think that the big problem that the, um, the president has right now in the, in the Democratic congressional leadership is to take a bill that has been that is that large, three and a half trillion, and to pare it back is basically to tell members of Congress, and not just the members of Congress, but interest groups, that the things that we promised you, the things that are in the bill now that you've been counting on and you've been telling your constituents to bank on, some of that's not going to be there. We're going to have to take stuff away. And you know, all, all of us who've been involved in politics know that it's a lot easier to give than to take away. And um, so it, it is frankly going to be an ugly process. And um, um, there's going to be a lot of screaming, probably some of it public and other private, in terms of what gets cut, whether it's childcare, whether it's, it's climate change uh, provisions or tax credits, um, uh, the, the whole and education for free education, pre-K, how long it's going to last. These things are going to have to be pared back to save money. And people are not going to want to agree to do that. So um, it's going to be a, a, an enormous challenge to get it done in a relatively short period of time. You know, uh, after Biden's meeting up there, one thing I noticed from everybody coming out of it, it seemed that they had at least agreed on a a message, which was this, we shouldn't be talking about the number, we should be talking about the policies. So exactly. instead of, you know, getting into the 3.5 versus 1.2 or Manchin's number versus uh, Jayapal's number or whatever. Uh, do you think that that's a, a, a good way to go? Oh, absolutely. Um, I, I think that's, I mean, from their standpoint, that's exactly the way to go. Because if you talk about the policies, the policies, according to every poll I've seen, are enormously popular when you break it down. You know, providing uh, additional childcare to, to people who, um, who, who have jobs or uh, single mothers uh, who need somebody to take care of their kids or, or free pre-K or uh, free um, tuition for community college. People like that, it's, it's, it's extremely popular, it's off the charts. But when you just get into the numbers and into the personality fights about, well, Manchin will accept this, but, um, but Bernie Sanders will take that. Then it gets into a Washington parlor game and people are just fed up with it. They don't want to hear about that. The numbers, people get lost, you know, three and a half trillion. It's a number which people can't get their, their, their minds wrapped around. Um, but the policies work. The problem is I don't think the press is going to follow the policies as, as much as the, the numbers and the personalities, because that is sort of, uh, that gets more clicks. Question. There's there's an interesting parallel here to 2017 in that in 2017, the Republicans tried to pass 
a tax cut uh, via reconciliation, like uh, you know, single party vote, um, they also could not afford all of their priorities into the, the, the amount of money that they had allocated for the bill. And so a lot of the popular provisions, for example, the individual income tax cuts and some of the very popular corporate uh, tax provisions were allowed to expire or sunset at the end of calendar 25, 2025. Is there some strategy here? Is there a page that, that Democrats could potentially take from that lesson? Um, and instead of, of you know, conducting a, a Sophie's Choice experiment of having to pick one program over another, just set everything to terminate in 2025 along with the Republican tax cuts, which then pulls the Republicans and the Democrats to the table in 2025 for a national discussion about what our priorities should be going forward, what lives and what doesn't live going forward, which programs are extended and which programs aren't, and how do we pay for them? Joy, that's a great question. And um, all of us as uh, budgeteers know that that's um, one of the trick, tricks up our sleeves all the time is, is using phase in and phase outs. And um, um, you're absolutely right that using uh, the phase out can make the cost of uh, different programs look cheaper. Uh, and then it puts pressure on future Congresses. And everybody knows that once a program is in place and people are counting on it, the pressure will be on Congress to extend it. Once you create it, you know, you know, it's the old adage, once you create a program in Washington, it's very hard to kill. Mm -hmm. And uh, th that logic is right. I'm not sure it'll work for every single program. I'm not sure that that uh, programs, you know, some some pro environmental programs, for example, on climate change necessarily would, would fit into that category. But I think to the extent they're able to do that, yes, I'm, I'm, I feel quite confident that's, that's what they will be doing. Um, that is sort of the easiest way to slice the baby in, in lots of different little pieces. So that's, that's perhaps they, but, but I would just add, they've, they're already doing that. There are a number of provisions in there which actually already, for example, the child tax credit um, has a phase out. And mm -hmm. um, so the question is how much more can they do that? I'm so that's sorry. Not, no, no. Then that's something to be looking for, looking for as as people evaluate the the cost of this legislation going forward is whether they're relying on that strategy and and then how much this this legislation really really yes. does cost. That's right, and I, I yes, that that's right because the fact is the bill is going to cost a lot more than CBO necessarily shows. I mean, CBO will show it reflecting that the phase outs are on the level when we frankly, know that they're not. And, uh, and and they also, people would need to be looking carefully at what the offsets are and how much really is offset, um, real offsets in terms of tax increases um, as opposed to um, supply side economics, which is when we, when we were uh, on, in the minority and Republicans used supply side economics to claim their tax cuts paid for themselves, we, we, mm -hmm. call it voodoo, we call it voodoo economics. Mm -hmm. And um, so um, um, voodoo, voodoo, may, voodoo may be looking pretty good these days up on the hill. They may need to use a lot of voodoo, absolutely. But I, I think it's going to be awfully hard. I mean, I um, anyway, um, as I said, just, just think about the notion of taking something which is as big as 3.5 trillion. By the way, it was a lot bigger than that before Bernie Sanders came down from, I think it was 5 trillion 
and mm -hmm. uh, or was it six? And, so and six trillion, and then he went down to three point five. He didn't want to do that. Now he's being told they're being told it's being cut once again, and um, there may be a breaking point. There may be a point. Um, progressives, some progressives decide irrationally, frankly, I think it would be a terrible mistake, but they may decide, you know what, it's not worth it. They may say, I'd rather just go home with nothing than take a, you know, a quarter of the loaf of what I wanted. I think that would be a mistake for their constituents. Uh, you know, they're elected, members of Congress are elected to deliver, and the fact that they're not getting everything is part of the legislative process, but uh, we will see. This always makes me think of a physics experiment we learned about when I was in high school called Schrodinger. It had to deal with Schrodinger's cat, where the cat was both alive and dead at the same time because they couldn't open open the box. And I, I feel like we're in that situation now where it's hard to envision a scenario where both pieces of legislation move forward, but it's equally hard to envision a scenario where both pieces of legislation die. Either e either scenario is just unfathomable to think about. You know, I just it's it's odd. I, I think you're exactly right. And you know, the stakes, the consequences would be so devastating, not just for the Biden administration, but for congressional Democrats, if both bills go down. Uh, with uh, midterm elections coming up, uh, the, the message would be that Democrats, the voters would say, we gave you the keys, we gave you the presidency, we gave you the House and the Senate, and you did not deliver. You did not do what you told us you would do. And therefore, we're not gonna go to the polls or we're gonna vote for the other guy. So I think that it would be terribly damaging. And I think every Democrat knows that. So I think at the end, ultimately, I think Democrats will come around. None of them will be happy. They're all gonna hold their nose. The progressives are gonna say, this thing is too damn big and I hate it. And the, and the, and the progressives are gonna say, this thing stinks, it's too damn small, but it's better than nothing. And, um, you know, welcome to welcome to a compromise. That, that's, that's, that's the way the process should work. Everybody has to uh, give up something and nobody has to love the ultimate, uh, uh, the ultimate product. Do you think that for public messaging to have the public focus on this, and there is a lot of support for the individual policies, you know, one of the other debates is, do we chisel it down to, to try to make it more focused? So you say this bill is gonna do one, two, three. Right now, it's so amorphous. It's just like right. it's got everything. So, right. you know, you got you got two different, uh, you know, because it, it's so amorphous because they're trying to get so many different people on board. And I wonder at some point is is the plane too heavy to get off the ground? Yeah, I mean, that's one way to look at it. On the other hand, the other way of looking at it is, um, you know, it's, it's kind of like a good transportation bill that, uh, you know, the highway bills where they get loaded with so much stuff that goes in them that everybody has a stake in passing it because everybody wants to go home to say they, they brought home a bridge or a tunnel or a school. And uh, it's just kind of that, that force of nature. Anybody that sees a 747 go up in the sky, you know, it, it's kind of, you're not quite sure how the heck it gets there, but it, it moves. So, um, and again, I'm showing my age because 747s don't fly anymore, but. Uh... <laughs> well, um, we'll excuse you that. Um... Let, let's move on to the debt limit. Good. Uh, a, a much easier. A, a much <laughs> I easier. Say, these questions keep getting harder. Uh, no, I, I, I was feeling a sense of relief we could get away from reconciliation. I guess I hadn't focused on 
how bad debt ceiling is. So um, yeah, it's I mean, at least right. simpler. It's a simpler issue though because you you have two sides and you're it's playing a game of chicken. So in that sense, analytically, I think it's more clear. Yeah, and we don't get away from reconciliation because it works its way into the debt limit fight. So so basically, we got uh, two weeks or, or less. We're really in a, in a situation now where something needs to be done. And instead of figuring out what needs to be done, we're having dueling press conferences. And I always hate that because it it, it hardens positions. And I, uh, I, I wonder, Tom, we always just assume that they'll work something out. Is there a real danger that they, they might actually oh, no. trip over it? I'm 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 very worried that 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 we could trip over it, and um, we've come close before. Uh, you remember in in 2011 when President Obama was in office, and congressional Republicans were not going to raise the debt ceiling. We got so close that in fact um, some of the um, the, uh, the the folks on Wall Street actually downgraded our our uh, our bond quality um, out of concern of whether. Um, whether we would extend the debt ceiling. So when I remember 95 under uh, uh, Bill Clinton, we got very close as well. So we've gotten close before. Um, I just like to believe I'm sort of an eternal optimist that somehow or another something's gonna work out in the end. But the problem, I mean, you have a real, it, you have a real dilemma here, a real challenge right now because um, Congre uh, Senator McConnell is absolutely, not only is he demanding that, um, uh, the Democrats, only Democrats vote for the debt ceiling increase, which is understandable. You know, you could argue back and forth whether it's a, a bipartisan responsibility and Democrats and Republicans have voted for it in the past. Beyond that, let's put that aside. McConnell says only Democrats should vote for it. Okay. So Democrats say that's what we'll do. So they have been putting debt ceiling on the floor for an up or down vote. All the Democrats would vote for it. But Republicans are filibustering that motion. The Republicans are filibustering an effort on the Senate floor, and they're doing it now again today, to vote for a debt ceiling increase. How could they be filibustering it and yet saying it has to happen? Well, Senator McConnell is insisting not only that only Democrats vote for it, but he is insisting on this arcane process of going through reconciliation once again through Democrats passing a budget resolution and then passing reconciliation with debt ceiling in it. Democrats are saying that's never been that's never been an obligation before. That's never the minority never has been never tested. Majority. I beg your pardon. Has it never been tested? That that's an unused right. section, right? Well, that's that's a that's that's a really good point too. Section three hundred four um, has not been used in decades. It it, it actually it was the uh, parliamentarian I think surprised everybody when she uh, announced that that three hundred four could be used in fact to um, amend the the resolution. And um, um, so you're right. So that, that, that's very unusual. And uh, it is a very elaborate, long process. What it will require is um, you'd have to take a budget resolution. You'd have to put it through the Senate Budget Committee. You'd have to get it out of the Senate Budget Committee, which is not an easy thing to do because you have an even number of Republicans, Democrats in the committee. So somehow you have to get a motion on the Senate floor to get the resolution out of the committee, then that will take debate in time. Then the budget resolution goes to the floor and then begins 30 hours of debate. 30 hours of debate is a phenomenal amount of time for the Senate to consume. Not only do you have 30 hours of debate, you then have unlimited voterama. You have an unlimited number of amendments that the minority 
can offer on everything under the sun, uh, and that will last a while. Then once Votorama is completed, then you have a final passage, then you send the budget resolution to the House. Meanwhile, the House has to go through a more truncated process. It has still has to go through the Budget Committee or they could bypass the Budget Committee. It has to go to the Senate floor. You have to have a, uh, a debate on the, uh, sorry, on the House floor, a debate on the House floor, conference or no conference, and then you have a budget resolution. Then you have to start the whole reconciliation process. And then it has to go through the Finance Committee and through the Ways and Means Committee and then go to the floor. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman and I are talking with Tom Kahn, a former Democratic staff director of the House Budget Committee. We'll be right back after these short messages. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. So I, I think that there's an interesting, I, I wrote a column about this the other day, and I, I I think Senator McConnell believes that he's trying to force Democrats down the path of reconciliation. But when you look at the law of unintended consequences, there's one thing that I think he's forgetting. And, and that is, you know, when push comes to shove, if, if he can't get you know, Republicans to just stay silent and not filibuster uh, a, a, a vote on a on a debt limit bill. And if reconciliation is no longer an option, just because of the the arduous process you have to go through, and we've run out of time. You know, he, he's basically McConnell's basically leading Democrats down a path of potentially having to nuke the filibuster for purposes of passing a, a debt limit bill. And so you have to think about, think, do you have to say, hey, Mitch McConnell, are you actually thinking about this as carefully as you should be? And perhaps you're thinking, you think you're leading Democrats down this one box canyon, but they may choose this other box canyon. And if that's the case, maybe you ought to back up a little bit and rethink your strategy. And I think the closer that we get to the, the X state, you know, Secretary of the Treasury Janet Yellen has said October 18th at this point is sort of her best guess as to when we need to have the debt limit completed because that's when they run out of cash. You know, right now people will say, well, there aren't enough, there aren't enough votes, you know, in, in the Senate uh, to move forward with general legislation versus reconciliation. But I think the closer and closer you get to October 18th, some of those no votes, for example, people will say right now that Senator Senate and Senator Manchin are not, do not support uh, you know, changing the filibuster in any way, even if it's just in a narrow way to address the debt limit. But I think the closer that you get to the 18th, maybe those no votes become yes votes, or maybe those 10 Republicans that we need to bypass cloture, if, for example, a Republican senator does stand up and try and filibuster some sort of general legislation approach to this. The closer that we get to the 18th, maybe we do have 10 Republicans. And I'm looking at you, Senator from Maine. I'm looking at you, you know, um, you know, some of our moderates, Mitt, Mitt Romney, uh, Susan Collins, et cetera, uh, who, who, whose no votes right now suddenly become yes votes. Well, I, I hope that's right. And and I, I think, you know, I think it's worthwhile to remind our, our, our listeners, um, the consequences, if we actually go over the cliff and we do not extend the debt ceiling, and the consequences would be, frankly, devastating mm -hmm. uh, the, for the dollar, the world economy, the financial markets. And what it would mean is that some critical bills would not get paid. Does that mean that Social Security checks, some of them wouldn't go out? We don't know. Does that mean that some military pay wouldn't go out? We don't know. Does it mean Medicare wouldn't get paid? We don't know. Does it mean 
debt holders wouldn't get paid. We don't know. We've never faced this before, and we never want to face it because it would be, in, in addition to the practical consequences, which would be horrible in causing inflation, it could cause a recession. On top of all that, frankly, it would be a, a message to the world that America can't take care of its problems anymore, that it can't do something as simple as pay our bills. And no other country has a system like that. Sure, it sort of makes the Great Recession of, of, of 2000, 2008, 2007 look like nothing. Always look for some sort of, people always look for some sort of uh, magic solution. So a couple that come to mind, uh, and you've probably heard some talk about this back in the 2011-2013 era. One is just say it's unconstitutional and say that the 14th Amendment says that the debt shall not be questioned. And so the president should just uh, order Treasury to keep uh, issuing debt and see what happens. And the other one, uh, my favorite magic option, not that I, uh, in, a, in a comical sense, favorite, is the trillion dollar coin where people say, oh, well, the Treasury uh, can, can, can mint commemorative coins. And we've all seen them. You know, you go out and you buy some commemorative coin or, you know, five, $10 coin or something that honors Rutherford B. Hayes, whatever. And some people say, well, you know, we can issue a trillion dollar coin and give it to the Federal Reserve and problem solved. Um, is there serious consideration you think with among Democratic uh, members for either the constitutional route or the trillion dollar coin route? Well, I do know for a fact, or it's been reported that when President Obama was in office and it looked like we were very, coming very close to going over the cliff, that, that he and uh, Treasury Secretary, his Treasury Secretary, I think it was Jack Lew, discussed it at the time and they rejected the notion of a, um, of, of a gold coin. Um, it's a platinum coin. It's, it's not even gold. It's, it's platinum. <laughs> I think it's. I think it's. Although I think it's technically, technically feasible, but it is the worst gimmick in the world. And once again, it would be a message that the United States cannot take care of its of paying its bills, and so it has to resort to this kind of quick, quick trick gimmick. Um, and it wouldn't really be taken seriously, at least by the financial markets, and it would make us look silly. The Fourteenth Amendment is an interesting theory. And I, I've heard that thrown around, and I know that that, that has been looked at. Um, and there are there are legal scholars who think the president would be able to do it, and there are legal scholars who don't. Probably judges would be would disagree on it. I think what might happen is the president could exercise that authority, and by the time a court came around to deciding whether or not he didn't did or a court were to decide he didn't have that authority, hopefully by then the debt ceiling problem would be resolved, and so. Uh, but these are extreme measures, frankly, that nobody wants to even really look at right now. And, and let's just hope that for the sake of the country, whether you're Republican or Democrat or independent, we just have to increase the debt ceiling. One last point, and, and then I'll, uh, and that is that we need to understand the reason we keep, re first of all, the reason we keep having to raise the debt is because Republicans and Democrats have been spending money and Republicans have been raising, cutting taxes. It is a bipartisan responsibility. Everybody's hands on it. And why? Well, most notably right now, we have spent several trillion dollars in COVID relief in order to help the economy, make sure that we don't go into a, another 1930s depression to make sure that, that people in hospitals get taken care of, make sure that, 
that vaccines are available, that nursing homes don't close. So that money, frankly, has been well spent and it was necessary. Um, and we have had to borrow to do it. Uh, mm -hmm. Thankfully, the economy is now turning around and uh, even with the Delta variant and, this, and the expectation according to CBO is that the deficit is gonna continue to go down. Last year it was 3.1 trillion, this year 3 trillion, and it is slated to go down uh, considerably next year. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, uh, and I hope we haven't depressed you too much about Facing the Future. <laughs> Tor Tori Gorman and I have been talking with Tom Kahn, an American University professor and former Democratic staff director of the House Budget Committee. Tom will let you get back to the rest of your day or your evening in, uh, in, you. in Kiev. Uh, thank and thank you for making the extra effort to join us. Tori and I will be right back after these short messages and we'll be joined by our colleague and Concord Chief Economist, Steve Robinson. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and I'm joined by Concord Coalition Policy Director, Tori Gorman, and Concord's Chief Economist, Steve Robinson. And uh, so we're going to get back into this uh, business about the legislative agenda and the debt ceiling and, and kind of opine a bit on our own. Uh, and uh, Tori, you know, we talked with uh, Tom Kahn a bit about the dilemma that's facing the Democrats uh, right now between, you know, how do, how do they uh, get their various uh, legislative acts together here to get something through? What, what are your, some of your thoughts about uh, how they might get this done? So my answer dependent, depends on which hat I'm wearing. If, let's put on the first hat, which is that of a, a policy analyst and, and someone who worries about debt and deficits. And that is, I think Democrats need to design a bill that reflects the mandate that they have. And that mandate is very, very narrow, right? They've got a three-seat majority in the House and the Senate is split 50-50. So trying to pass a $3.5 trillion uh, huge uh a social infrastructure bill on a, on a very narrowest of majorities just it doesn't reflect the mandate that they have. Their mandate is, I would argue they don't even have a mandate. You know, they're very, very evenly split. And my recommendation and my, and my solution there, if I was a, on the Hill and, and advising uh, members of the House and the Senate would be to pare down your legislation, pick one or two priorities that you want as your signature issues um, and focus solely on those and, and making those issues permanent, whether it's the child tax credit or whether it's the, the climate change energy policies in the bill. You know, pick one or the other and, and focus solely on those. Now, if I take my policy hat off and I put on my political hat, okay, my advice would be exactly the opposite which is to take a page from the Republicans in, in, in 2017 and their tax bill, you know, they couldn't fit all of their priorities into, into their reconciliation instructions. So what did they do? They took the most popular aspects of their tax cuts, the individual income tax cuts and a couple of the business tax cuts, and they made them temporary. They all expire at the end of tax year 2025. So if I'm a Democrat and I'm wearing my political hat, and I need to make everybody happy, then I'm gonna put everything, including the kitchen sink into this reconciliation bill, but I'm gonna sunset it in calendar year 2025. I'm not gonna make any of it permanent in order to make it appear cheaper than it really is for purposes of score scorekeeping 
and getting through the reconciliation process, but I'm also lining up the, the, the expiration dates in the Democrats' priorities with the expiration dates of the Republican tax cut priorities, which then in 2025 brings everybody together at the table to have a national conversation about what our priorities should be and, and, and encourage some honest to goodness, horse trading and compromise about what we do going forward. So that's my answer, depending upon which hat I'm wearing. So you're 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 setting up the big fiscal cliff, <laughs> the mother of all fiscal cliffs. <laughs> if if I'm wearing my political hat, yes. But if I'm wearing my policy hat, no. I'm telling Democrats to pick one or two issues and and as their signature issues, their their legacy issues, make those permanent and dump everything else. What about the the pay fors? I mean, uh, if they uh, the you know, the president has been saying that everything is going to be paid for. Uh, do you think what they'll do is have 10 year pay fors and five year spending? Um, I, I think any kind of pay for that they put in there that that hits the wealthy or hits uh, corporations will be permanent. I don't think those will expire. I think those will continue. Um, Steve, uh, there's another element of this that uh, would would come up from one of Tory's scenarios, which is just pack everything in and let it all expire. Uh, you know, you've done some uh, work on looking at some of these policies and what hypothetically they could cost, uh, and not necessarily in a CBO score sense, but just in a you know taking a, a goal like universal pre-K uh, or two years of community college and saying. Just, just looking at some numbers and saying, well, what would that actually cost to do, not that implementing a specific plan? Uh, could you sort of review some of those conclusions from the uh, issue briefs that you've been doing this fall? Uh, yeah, sure. So there, there's an old expression about the, uh, the promise being bigger than the purse. And so if you look at what the Democrats have rhetorically promised, in terms of you know universal pre-K and free community college and you know expanded long-term care for the elderly and the disabled, I mean, you know they have three sort of distinct categories of children, college students, and the elderly and disabled. And if you look at you know sort of the you know and obviously all of these depend on the design of the program um, in terms of you know who participates, what the level of services provided are. But I mean, as, as you mentioned, for example, in uh, universal pre-K, so there's, you know, 8 million kids who are ages three and four. So if you have a high quality childcare program, and generally the quality of the childcare program is a function of the staff to child ratio. So, you know, the more staff you have per child, the higher quality the program, but also by definition, the more staff you have, the more the program costs. So the question becomes, you know, how many of those 8 million kids are going to participate? And uh, how many staff do you have per child and those sorts of things. But I mean, you know, I came up with some rough numbers and, you know, a universal pre-K of 100% participation of all three and four-year-olds with a staff ratio of one to 10, it's $100 billion a year. Now we're spending about $30 billion right now in Head Start. So you can net that out and say, well, we're not going to pay for kids to go to Head Start and Pre-K because it's the same population. So, you know, you're talking $70 billion a year. 
if you assume that you know you don't have universal participation that it drops you know somewhat you can get numbers in the range of you know 40 or 50 billion dollars but but still the point is you know the the president's budget as well as the the congressional budget you know it simply three and a half trillion sounds like a lot of money but when you start adding up you know what is the cost of universal pre-k what is the cost of paid family and medical leave uh, you know, what is the cost of free community college, you know, double, doubling the Pell Grant, all of these proposals become very, very expensive very quickly. And if you actually did all of these things fully for 10 years, the cost would be, you know, multiples of the numbers that they're talking about. So, you know, what they're going to have to do is either scale them back, means test them, phase them in, or sunset them. But as a result, they're going to create a lot of disappointed people. I mean, when you say, look, we're going to do all of these wonderful things, but it's not going to start for three or four or five years, or alternatively, we're going to start next year and end it the year after. I mean, you know, the, the, the level of, of cynicism that you create by saying, here are all of our goals and here are all the things that we're going to do, but we can't afford it. So we're just going to make them all sunset and we'll fight another day about how to pay for it. Well, it's like, you know, it's just, I, I don't know, to me, it just, it sort of, it, it, I'm not sure they thought through the politics of the disappointments that they're going to create when they start scaling back, phasing in, sunsetting, and limiting the participation of these broad, expansive things that they've been promising. I just think that uh, they've set themselves up for a big disappointment. Well, I suppose that uh, it will, uh, I mean, one of the, the things is, when you look at these programs, how likely is it politically that they would be allowed to ex expire? Uh, you know, you sort of assume that they probably won't be because once these things are on the books, uh, it's very difficult to take them away. And yet it would uh, create these obstacles every couple of years, uh, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, to try to either extend these programs or change them in some way. So it it seems like we're going to be in for, uh, if, if, if they go that route, uh, that, that we'll be in for a very choppy uh, budget process for, uh, for several years to come. And we should mention that all of this is, uh, is, is raising spending and using the tax increases to pay for the new spending, uh, or at least part of it. And there is no discussion in all of this about the uh, the unsustainable path that the debt was was already on, mm -hmm. uh, and I, I I I do worry about uh, creating permanent new spending. I mean, this this is sometimes referred to as once in a generation investment, that sort of thing, but I think that's a a little bit misleading. If you're talking about building a bridge or something like that, that's a one shot deal, but you're talking about new permanent spending in benefit programs that's a, that's that has to be financed forever that's a new permanent commitment uh so i think sometimes it's you know people lose track of what a uh, a major uh change uh th this would be if it uh, went through well speaking i want to move on in the uh, time we have left to uh a topic that we've talked about uh, before, but it's becoming increasingly urgent, and that is the uh, 
the debt limit. We're creeping very, very close to when uh, Janet Yellen says she won't be able to pay all the bills. Mm -hmm. And I don't think she's bluffing. No. Um, there might be some bluffing going on on, on Capitol Hill. How do you think? Uh, how do you think they get out of this one, <laughs> Tori? <laughs> um, well, you know, we, we we talked about this earlier. You know, uh, Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, Republican Leader Mitch McConnell in the Senate, is trying to force the Democrats down a path of of using reconciliation to raise the debt limit because it forces Democrats to put a number and vote on a number which then becomes fodder for campaign ads. Um, there's and, and, and that Democrats are the only ones that need to vote for that during reconciliation. You don't, don't need Republican votes. And there's another way to do that as well. And that's just to put a general bill on, on the floor, general legislation on the floor that suspends the debt limit for a specific amount of time. And as long as Republicans agree not to filibuster it, that can also pass with a, a simple majority vote by, by the Democrats. Um, so, uh, Republicans have said that they're going to try, they will filibuster any general legislation. McConnell's trying to force the Democrats down the pathway of using reconciliation. Um, that's, that's the, the box Canyon that he's trying to lead them down. Um, I, I think, however, there's, there's, there's a, there's an off ramp there for, for Democrats. There's an emergency break glass, uh, escape route. And that's, you know, narrowly nuking the filibuster, um, if, if, if left with no alternative, if reconciliation is not available to the Democrats for a variety of reasons, whether it's because they don't have enough time um, or there are certain you know, rules of construction against it, and if the Republicans won't let them put general legislation on the floor without getting 60 votes, uh, minority, majority leader Schumer, Democratic leader Schumer is gonna have no other choice Okay, you, we're, default is just simply not an option. The only other choice is to nuke the filibuster for purposes of passing a debt limit bill. And I'm starting to wonder whether or not Mitch McConnell's thought about that. I mean, he, he thinks that he's leading Democrats down this reconciliation pathway, when in reality, I'm wondering if what he's really doing and he doesn't, he's not aware of it, or he thinks that the Democrats won't go this way. And that is to, to, to nuke the filibuster. Now, a lot of people will scream, rat and rave, Democrats don't have the votes to nuke the filibuster. Cinema and Manchin don't support nuking the filibuster. And today they're right, okay? Today we are, what, 10 days or so away from the X date and, and, and breaching the, the debt limit, defaulting on our debt. So maybe today, Mansion and Cinema, or maybe those magical ten Republicans that are preventing us from, from preventing Democrats from getting cloture on a general legislation bill to 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 suspend the debt limit. You know, maybe those votes are no today, but I would argue that the closer that we get to October eighteenth, and maybe if Schumer puts legislation down on the floor that instead of suspending the debt limit until December of twenty twenty two. What if he only suspends the debt limit to December of 2021, which would allow Treasury to reload extraordinary measures in one more time? Those no votes become yes votes. You know, Tori, I, I agree with you. I, I think while Schumer is looking for an off ramp, I think that McConnell needs to start looking for an off ramp. And, and I hope I hope he is because he's really 
leading his own troops into this box canyon, as, as you said, because both sides are are betting, it seems to me, that the other side will get blamed for any catastrophe that's going to happen. And that really scares me because it seems that the energy is not going into figuring a way out of this, but into figuring out who's going to get blamed for the negative consequences that happen, which is fine in a lot of political contexts, but not when the debt of the United States is at stake. And that's that's really what I worry about what's happening right now. I think when faced with the possibility of default, you know, if it's October 16th and we're staring down default, when Senator Sinema and Manchin are faced with the option of default versus nuking the filibuster for purposes of passing a debt limit bill, I think they'd choose to pass the debt limit bill. I, I certainly hope so. But that's uh, on that note of suspense, we'll have to end there. Uh, that's all the time we have for this week. So, uh, Tori and Steve, uh, thanks for joining us. And thanks to our listeners again. I'm uh, Bob, Bix uh, Bob Bixby, your host, and I'll be back next week when maybe I can pronounce my name better uh, <laughs> with another edition of Facing the Future. <laughs>